Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. where there is no suffering. Part of what it is to be human is to be able to struggle against the problems that, that beset us. But that doesn't say anything about morality. It says that's the kind of world in which we live. And, but morality is about trying to make that into a better world by trying to organise how we relate to each other. Uh, when we talk about what is good and what is bad, what we're really talking about is how should we relate to each other as human beings. And if you want to lessen suffering, that becomes a very important question. So it's precisely because we do have a, a world in which people suffer that we should think about moral questions. What makes something right or wrong? And can a book give us the answer? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. On tonight's show, broadcaster and author Kenan Malik discusses what it is to be human as teased out in his latest big read, The Quest for a Moral Compass. And is The Great Gatsby one of those books that everybody should read in their lifetime? Professor Sarah Churchwell and Dr Philip McGowan join me to discuss the geography of regret, the pains of marriage and all that jazz in the writings of F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is a show about love and money, past and present, artistic impulse and the meaning of right and wrong. But first, what makes Jay Gatsby one of the greatest fictional characters of all time? In an undated letter to his daughter, F. Scoff's Gerald wrote, All good writing is swimming underwater and holding your breath. Remarkable omission from such a legendary writer who dreamed of classics such as Tender is the Night, this side of paradise, the beautiful and the damned, and of course his masterpiece, The Great Gatsby. But then again, when you think about it, it's not too surprising. F. Scott Fitzgerald was not recognised for the talented writer he was in his lifetime. When Fitzgerald died in 1940, hundreds of copies of The Great Gatsby were piling up in his publisher's warehouse, still unsold. Today, 90 years on, more than 500,000 copies are sold each year. What a turnaround. So what is it about The Great Gatsby that makes it such a popular read? And is it the novel's brevity, its satirical social commentary and wit part of its charm? Well, to answer these and many more questions, Dr Sarah Churchwell, Professor of American Literature at the University of East Anglia and the author of Forgotten Fitzgerald, Echoes of a Lost America, and Philip McGowan, Senior Lecturer in American Literature at Queen's University Belfast, joined me in studio to discuss this joint of American literature. Well, to get things rolling, I put it to Philip. Is it fair to describe The Great Gatsby as one heck of a love story? 
It would be fair as a starting point, yes, but it's not just about one love story. It's not just Daisy and Gatsby. It's a whole load of love stories. So you could think of Tom and Myrtle and their illicit love affair, whatever does or doesn't happen with Nick Carraway and Jordan Baker. Then obviously there's the Daisy Gatsby story. And then a much more central story, I think, about Nick and his identity with the United States of America and a love for a certain sense of nostalgia about what America can mean. So love in all its facets is something that's live and running right through The Great Gatsby, certainly. And what about love of money? Well, yes, we can see that in the sort of decadent displays throughout the novel, but it's not necessarily the central message. I think sometimes The Great Gatsby gets misread for that, and Fitzgerald's work in general gets misread as the sort of the writer of the 20s, the writer of American success. Um, There's an awful lot of darkness and undercurrents of not just criminality in The Great Gatsby, but also of depression and despair. So if you think of the Valley of Ashes episodes, you think of George Wilson's life. There is also the counter side of money and the dark side of what has happened in the American 1920s. And was he as angry or as cynical on love in his short stories as he was in his big reads? His short stories are probably a little bit more hopeful about romantic love than his novels are. The short stories were written for commercial magazines at a time when that was one of the main modes of entertainment for middle-class Americans, you know, remembering that this is for television and um, films are just starting to come into their own. Radio is just beginning in the early 1920s. And so the, the, the main mode of entertainment for many families was to read short stories together from these magazines. And so in that sense, he gave what we now think of as quote-unquote Hollywood endings to these stories because that was what was commercially successful. But his, his best stories don't do that. And they have that edge of, of truthfulness and, and a little bit more darkness. It's also true that in, in the case of Scott Fitzgerald, he's someone who very much his thinking and his career went through a very discernible evolution. So as a young man, he was very optimistic. As he got older and wiser, I'm afraid, he became more cynical and he became more beaten down by, by life and, and a little bit more despairing. And so the later stories, there's more of a tension between his kind of instinctive idealism and his instinctive desire for life to be a beautiful and grand and romantic affair, which I think was a very artistic impulse that he had, and his, you know, the realization of his critical intelligence that life often wasn't like that. Fitzgerald's a very complicated figure in a number of ways, and he's like Carraway, but he's not like Carraway. He'd kind of like to be Gatsby, but will never be Gatsby. He's an outsider from Minnesota who comes to New York and is, I suppose, overwhelmed in some ways by the excess of the, of the spaces and of the amazing opportunities of the 1920s. But he's also a very sort of cold, critical eye on all of these things. So even though he can describe the American financial boom of the 1920s perfectly, he is also hyper-aware of the other side of it. So when it comes to the 1930s, Fitzgerald writes that as well. So I think a sort of one-way look at Fitzgerald, which only sees him as writing the 1920s and New York and the glitz and glamour of the jazz age, is a very short-sighted way of looking at Escoff Fitzgerald. Was he not, though, a very self-pitying type of writer, though? Because if you look broadly at a lot of his books... There's a lot of him in it, Mm. or certainly his relationship, certainly with his wife, his desperations, disappointments. 
he writes so much about himself within the storylines. He does, yes. And Zelda Sayre, his wife, figures as well. And we see that maybe most particularly in a, no- a novel like Tender's the Night. Um, but we also see, you know, his previous girlfriends and previous relationships in his earlier short stories. His life is there. It's a template for the writing of his characters. But his characters are not him. And, and I think we have to be very careful about reading the work for the life. Just reading literature for the biography of a writer. Because there's more going on in every one of those. Fitzgerald's stories and fictions than just F. Scott Fitzgerald writing about himself. He does have his self-conscious moments about writing. He has his concerns about his abilities and his relationship, for example, with Ernest Hemingway leads off into various different uh, avenues of, you know, concern, interest, support, but also a sort of self-consciousness about not just his writing ability, but his masculinity. And so, you know, Fitzgerald is a hyper-aware, hyper-conscious writer. Yes, there's biography in there, but it's not all about Fitzgerald. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that Fitzgerald very much drew on the people that he knew, the experiences that he had. He, he tended to make what he called composite characters, where he, his ideas about people would come from people he'd met who interested him. And then he would take aspects of one person and aspects of another person. And I think a lot of novelists, a lot of fiction writers do that. I mean, very few people make up things completely out of whole cloth that have no relationship to their experiences whatsoever. He was like any writer, drawing on the world that he saw. But I do think that his particular gift was an ability to see past the surfaces of of his contemporary world and to see its deeper meanings and its deeper structures. And that's why he became such an important chronicler of contemporary life. And that's something that's very hard for writers to do. Often they need a little bit of perspective. They write, you know, wonderful historical novels where they can look back with a few decades of distance and understanding, whereas he could write about the moment more or less as it was happening with great insight and with great empathy. You know, if on the one hand he was always drawing on the people around him, he was also someone who wrote of them with great love and and great compassion. And, you know, he wasn't somebody who did poison pen portraits of the people that he knew. That's something that was, you know, more the sort of thing that Hemingway liked to do. But Fitzgerald wrote with great admiration uh, often for the people around him. And, you know, he understood that, for instance, his wife Zelda was one of the most remarkable women of her generation. And he was constantly hearing her say, you know, things that struck him as witty or interesting or trying to capture her personality because that was something that he saw as being very, on the one hand, you know, she was, she was unique, but on the other hand, she was very much a kind of representative modern young woman, a flapper, and, and he was trying to kind of chronicle his age. And, and I think that it's easy for us to forget what a contemporary writer he was. Can I ask you, as a woman reading F. Scott Fitzgerald, some of his female characters are certainly some of the places women go in marriages and relationships. Women aren't presented very well. <laughs> yes, I would agree. doesn't take from them being smashing books, mm. but there is an uncomfortability I have as a woman reading some of F. Scott Fitzgerald's books. There is a, an amazing scene at the end of The Great Gatsby where Nick records and relates uh, a dream that he's had and it is of a woman who is just completely comatose, being carried on a stretcher and no one knows who she is and no one cares. So there is this kind of dormant, static characterization of the women, which is an issue 
in Fitzgerald. But he's not alone in that. But how do we explain that? Or should we bother to explain that? Um, we probably should bother, yes. Because we're also looking at the period in the 1920s when women have achieved emancipation in the United States. They have the vote for the first time ever. But you know, Fitzgerald is, is a kind of... He's a bit like Carraway in that way, where Carraway starts off the novel and talks about a seismograph recording earthquakes thousands of miles away. Fitzgerald is someone who is recording the moment within the United States. So he records the the fluctuations after World War One, the changes in gender roles in American society. But he is doing it from a very masculine point of view. There is another reason, possibly, and that's Zelda. His wife is a challenge. I'd say, in a number of ways. Not just as a personality, but also as an artist. And Fitzgerald and Zelda have a very difficult, ongoing, productive and destructive relationship. So when you start reading the the women in Fitzgerald and you start reading them possibly via Zelda Sayre, then that only leads us into one direction. And I think Fitzgerald's positioning and placement of women in the texts is to do with partly his upbringing, very Catholic, very masculine in some ways in terms of his his anxieties and his dreams, you know, being a football star, being a writer. And then he meets Zelda Sayre, who's this sort of southern belle who has all the gentleman callers and is also has her own artistic ambitions. So there is that sort of sense of challenge within the women as well. And the closer you read them, the more you actually see that Fitzgerald does imbue them with more potential than is obvious. You know, Fitzgerald is very much a product of his time in some ways. And, you know, we associate him with the modern 1920s, but he was born in 1896. He was raised in an Edwardian era. And so some of his attitudes and values are you know, not totally 21st century. And you know, we shouldn't really be surprised about that. And in, in one respect, you know, some people find that his attitudes to women are you know, maybe not as completely progressive as they might like. My own feeling is that he actually is very sympathetic to women. And he, he understands the importance to women in his era of beauty and glamour and how that's a kind of currency that women, particularly wealthy women, that was what they had to trade with. And that's something that he's always very interested in as an artist, this idea of glamour. And he's interested in the way it it adheres to houses or to lifestyles, but also the way that that it can adhere to certain women. And, you know, I think in his stories he does have a tendency to either romanticize those women or perhaps to demonize them a little bit Why do you think it took so long for The Great Gatsby to be recognised as a great book? Because it really wasn't up until maybe the 60s before it was started to be properly appreciated as a classic, as a gem of American fiction. Well, one sort of initial reason is because he chooses a very conservative publisher. Charles Scribner and Sons are very, very old school, old fashioned New York publisher. So they would only, when it came to The Great Gatsby or any of Fitzgerald's novels, release 3,000 copies per print run. So they would just run out. So if you wanted to find The Great Gatsby in 1925, you know, if you didn't see it on the shelves, you shouldn't be surprised because they would take a while to print it again. Um, Then Fitzgerald's life, you know, it takes another, you know, nine years until his next novel comes out. And by this stage, he's moving to Hollywood and his career has sort of hit the buffers a bit, possibly because of personal issues with Zelda. But there's always been a question, I suppose, and Fitzgerald was aware of it in his lifetime, about how successful he would be, how important he would be. And while we look at the novels as the big central achievements of his life, he's also writing an awful lot of short fiction. And this is basically to pay the bills and mostly, you know, bills for a very extravagant lifestyle or for Zelda's hospitalizations. So in the 1920s, like at the end of 1929, he's earning 
up to $3,600 per short story for the Saturday Evening Post or for Esquire. But his royalties from novels that year is about $13. So he's not making any money on long fiction. And it will take probably, yes, just probably 1950s, 60s. But that's also the period where American studies and the American canon is starting to be constructed within American universities. So that's when we have Herman Melville, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Walt Whitman are all sort of resurrected into the American pantheon. Now, Ernest Hemingway, Philip, advised Scott Fitzgerald that if he was going to overly mine his social relationships and present them in in his books, that he, he at least should be somewhat more authentic to their context, that he was overstretching the truth in so many different ways or not properly presenting things as they are, that there was something that was very inauthentic about the relationships. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think Hemingway's one to talk. Uh, If you look at Hemingway's novels, certainly the later ones, these ridiculous masculine hero figures who are able to, you know, bed every woman, drink every drink, you know, it's impossible. So he himself is quite inauthentic in his production of his gender roles in his texts. But I do think there is something in that. There is something in what he says to Fitzgerald. Some of his advice is perfect and spot on. But I I think, you know, what Fitzgerald does is to talk about something that maybe isn't necessarily context specific. You know, he's writing about, in The Great Gatsby, the 1920s. But there's more going on in that. Or when he writes short stories at the end of the 1920s, there's more than just two people in a room discussing love or whatever it might be. There's an awful lot more cultural references going on. So you need to be very careful with Fitzgerald just to sort of read him in one way. Why should we still be reading F. Scott Fitzgerald or certainly The Great Gatsby? Is it maybe the mystery that's in it? The idea that we can all somehow invent ourselves and recreate the past in some romantic, cheesy way? First of all, we need to keep reading Fitzgerald because he's brilliant. Uh, his prose style is excellent. Great Gatsby is possibly, you know, the most perfect example of his, his writing. Why do you say that, though? Because if you look at it and you sort of shake it, there's no loose words. There's not a there's not a loose sentence that could have been just taken out and the book would be fine without it. You know, the later books like Tender as the Night, it's much more difficult and rough-edged. It goes through 18 drafts. Fitzgerald is never happy with it at the end. Whereas The Great Gatsby is this sort of polished stone which is is perfect but you know I think that that love theme that idea of the American dream theme is not necessarily what Fitzgerald himself says he you know Carraway says in the book you can't repeat the past and and Gatsby doesn't listen there is something about the novel that speaks to a central human need I suppose but also it it is a particular register of an American moment and of an American aspiration which still has traction these days. Um, so when at the end of the novel, we reach out our arms further, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, you know, you get that in American presidential campaigns. It's the same thing, sort of the regeneration of hope within the possibility of America, because that is what the end of the novel does. It connects Nick Carraway to his American past and the solid foundations of a Midwestern lifestyle. And it connects Gatsby and Carraway to a much bigger idea of an American dream of independence and liberty. And possibly also that heroes can also have faults, that they're not perfect, because none of his characters are pretty good. Mm. They're quite rotten in ways, but we can love them all the same and we can cherish them because they are very, very human. Yes, indeed. Um, They are all flawed in every single degree. You know, whether it is the women who are somewhat vacant or dubious in terms of Jordan Baker, whether it's the men who, like Haraway, have quite ambiguous relationships with friends, whether male or female, whether it's Gatsby's dream, which itself is founded upon an illusion, which will never happen. Um, 
yes, they're flawed. So are we. You know, there is something, you know, when you read it. And, and, you know, I started reading this when I was at school. And like many people do, do it for the Leaving Cert, do it for A-level. But it persists. There's something about, even though the the, the words of the, the novel are quite depressing, the, the melodies, the, the structure of it is enhancing in some way. So there's, there's kind of a double a double flow in the narrative, I think, for Fitzgerald. He's he both optimistic and deeply pessimistic about America. So it's a bit like a poem, really. It is, yes, in many ways. Uh, and it's no surprise. You know, he is a big fan of poetry, he's a big fan of Keats. So, you know, he is highly influenced by that sort of romantic period of, of literature. And we see it come in not just in this novel, we see it in the next novel in Tenzer of the Night. Sarah, how should we remember F. Scott Fitzgerald? What has been his impact on the modern novel? The question of Fitzgerald's impact on the modern novel is an interesting one because he's very difficult to emulate. His erstwhile friend and, and rival, Ernest Hemingway had a much more discernible influence on the novel because Hemingway's style was something that writers could emulate and learn from. Nobody can write like Scott Fitzgerald. Um, his lyricism and his, his romantic force, his ability to turn language in this really poetic way and yet write with a satirical edge and then see right through the heart of his society into its kind of deepest meaning, that's not something that most writers can do. And so in that sense, you can't really say that he, he shaped the modern American novel. On the other hand, he made a lot of writers' works possible, people like John Cheever, John Updike, to see the romance in, in everyday life, in everyday American life, to see the possibilities for poetry and even a kind of surreal beauty in the everyday is something that uh, people have learned from Fitzgerald and, and tried to build on or, or to emulate. But I think his greatest gift was his ability to, to see what the meaning of this emergent America was. He made all kinds of predictions in the early 1920s. They were sort of throwaways where he said, you know, New York is going to be the center of culture in the 20th century. And people thought that was ludicrous. It was so clear that Paris was the center of culture that it, was, it would be like saying, you know, Arkansas is going to be the center of culture. New York was considered raw and vulgar and commercial and pushing. And, and everybody thought that was completely insane. And yet... Of course, he was right. And so I think that, you know, insofar as The Great Gatsby is a prediction and a lament, a cautionary tale about how America is going wrong, well, we can see from modern life around us how accurately he saw what was happening to, to his country and to his society. And not only is that what's happened to America, but it's starting to happen in other places in the world as well, this kind of embracing of materialism and capitalism as a corrupting force, you know, people wanting luxury over anything else and, and losing any, any sense of deeper values. Well, I think we can see that all over the world. I mean, I've been told that The Great Gatsby right now is very popular in Russia, in India, and it's not surprising because those countries are going through changes very like what America was going through in the early 1920s. And that, that, that paradigmatic story of the aspirational young man destroyed by the corruption of his ideals it truly is a, you know, a universal story that unfortunately shows no signs of losing its, its impact.
Last question, Philip. I hadn't realised that there is an Epscot Fitzgerald Festival that takes place every second year here in Ireland. I know the next one is going to be this July. Can you tell me about it and who who is it aimed at? The Epscot Fitzgerald Society has, as you're saying, a biennial conference and this next one is in Waterford, starting in Dublin on the 4th of July and then moving to Waterford. It's aimed at anyone interested in Fitzgerald. So whether it's academics, ordinary Fitzgerald fans and readers, everyone is welcome to come. And it alternates between Europe and America every two years. So in in two years' time, we'll go back to the United States and then we'll relocate to Europe in 2019. Fancy dresses and fancy cars? There have been fancy dresses and fancy cars, yes. When we were in Nice a few years ago, in the year 2000, there was a lot of fancy dresses. And in New York, there was a huge, big uh, sort of carnival of fancy dresses. And the highlight of this festival is what exactly? Well, it depends what you're looking for, I suppose. But if you want to engage with Fitzgerald scholars and coming scholars from the next generation in terms of Fitzgerald studies, yes. Uh, we also, you know, kindly, thankfully have uh, Sarah coming to talk in Waterford this summer as well. And in this particular conference, because we're in Ireland, we're going to be looking at any connections between Fitzgerald and Ireland. Obviously, his great-grandfather has moved from Fermanagh way before time begins. We're also going to look at connections with Irish writers. So Joyce, Beckett, Yeats and Fitzgerald's interest because he is an astute reader and a highly cultured writer at this period so he's highly aware of all of these writers working particularly Joyce. All the details will be on the F. Scott Fitzgerald Society website which is fscottfitzgeraldsociety.org was Dr. Philip McGowan from the F. Scott Fitzgerald Society and Professor Sarah Churchwell from the University of East Anglia. Sarah's also written an intriguing novel, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. Well worth reading too. OK, coming up next, we're going to change the pace a bit and ask, is morality hard word 
in humans? And if so, why do the righteous suffer? But first let's break and chill out with some lovely tunes from Berlin's finest, the magnificent Niels Fram. News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Now, if you've missed any of our recent shows, don't worry. They're all up as podcasts on the News Talk website. All you have to do is go to www.newstalk.com forward slash talking books. News Talk has some very handy apps for mobiles, which make podcasting a cinch. Now, we're going to change tack a bit and delve into a bit of history and morality. Kenan Malik is a writer, lecturer and much admired broadcaster with BBC Radio 4. Kenan's played a prominent role in British public debates on the meaning of human nature, the politics of multiculturalism, immigration and the limits of free speech. He's a humanist and a proud and vocal member of the British left. Kenan's books include Man, Beast and Zombie, Strange Fruit, Why Both Sides Are Wrong in the Race Debate, and from Fatwa to Jihad, which was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. Well, Kennan's latest publishing venture, The Quest for a Moral Compass, A Global History of Ethics, is an ambitious, challenging and meaningful investigation into the history of moral thought and moral choice, covering everything from the Bible to Nirvana to communism. Yep, all very challenging indeed. Well, over the weekend, I had a great chat with Kennan about how we as communities and as individuals interpret morality. I ask Kenan, do we have too much judgment in life? There are times when we're probably too judgmental. There are also times when I think we don't have sufficient judgment in our lives. We, we live in, in a world where, we, where there's often an anything goes philosophy, where we're, we're frightened of saying this is right, this is wrong. And so I think it works both ways. The trouble is when we do make judgments, it's often not reasoned judgment, but based on faith or prejudice or a whole host of other issues. There isn't sufficient discussion, dialogue, debate out of which those kinds of judgments come. Now, you say, Kenan, that the notion of right and wrong is historically flexible. Well, historically, if you go back in time, clearly people had different views on what is right and wrong. If you go through the history of Christianity, for instance, for hundreds of years, Christians burnt witches and thought that that was sanctified by the Bible and by God. Now, very few modern Christians think that. And that's not because you know, God has changed his mind. It's because humans have. But clearly, there are differences in the way we understand a whole host of different issues from torture, quality, 
slavery and so on. Now, one of the interesting things I found when I was reading through your book, Kenan, is that whether you had ancient uh, Greek philosophers or some very interesting, engaged Enlightenment thinkers, nobody has ever really been able to really, I suppose, find a solution to the fact that morality is neither objective nor subjective. I know that you say moral questions may have objective answers, but they do have rational ones. I mean, questions of morality don't have objective answers in the way that scientific questions do. So to say that torture is wrong or charity is good is qualitatively different from saying that light travels at, I think it's 300 million metres per second or or that DNA is a double helix. But to say that questions of morality do not have objective answers in the way scientific questions do is not to say that moral judgments are merely expressions of subjective desire or taste. So to make a moral judgment, to say that torture is wrong or charity is good, is qualitatively different from saying that ice cream is good or Justin Bieber awful. If everybody thinks that ice cream is bad or Justin Bieber is good, then I might privately despair. But if everyone were to believe that torture is good or that charity is bad, there'd be a tear in the very fabric of society. And I think that's a fundamental distinction. As you say, people always ask, are moral norms, objective or subjective. And the idea that they're neither is something that they find very difficult. But to me, what makes moral values non-arbitrary, but not yet objective, is that they're not fixed in some transcendental sphere. They don't derive from God. They cannot be objectively defined by science, as some people now argue. But they emerge out of what you may call humanity's collective judgment. What I mean by that is that they're the product of the constant conversations that we have with each other within societies, across societies, and metaphorically with the past and with the future. And it's out of that that what I call the rationality of morality comes out, a rationality that that comes out of social need. What would you say to people who say, you know, why should I be good? Or what does it mean to be a good person? Because even if I'm a very good person, a law-abiding person, that I will still suffer in life and you can't avoid suffering. So where do morality and suffering meet and how are they in relationship? Sure, there, there will always be suffering. It may be that we'll never have a society where there is no suffering to a certain extent. Part of what it is to be human is to be, to be able to struggle against the problems that, that beset us. But that doesn't say anything about morality. It says that's the kind of world in which we live. And, but morality is about trying to make that into a better world by trying to organise how we relate to each other. Uh, when we talk about what is good and what is bad, what we're really talking about is how should we relate to each other as human beings. And if you want to lessen suffering... That becomes a very important question. So it's precisely because we do have a a world in which people suffer that we should think about moral questions. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the Bible has impacted on moral thought or some of the other big books like the Koran? To understand how, say, Christianity or Islam or Judaism, the three monotheistic faiths, how they impacted about moral faith, it's worth thinking about how people thought about religion and about God before monotheism. Think about ancient Greece, for instance. We don't think about ancient Greece as a deeply religious society, but it was. But the concept of religion and of God was very different from that today. The gods of ancient Greece were not wise and judicious like the gods of Judaism and Christianity and Islam came to be. 
the gods of ancient Greece were, were capricious and vain and vicious and deceitful and immoral. In fact, they were very human in that sense. Unlike the ancient gods, the monotheistic god, whether it was Jewish or Christian or, or Islamic, was all good, all powerful. He could act as he chose, and he created humans in his own image as equals, as rational agents with free will, and was also unconditionally good towards them. And so through this new vision of God, in a sense, monotheism made humans both greater and lesser than they had been before. But at the same time, humans were now seen as weak and corrupt and flawed and broken. You know, the idea perhaps best expressed in the story of the fall and of the Christian notion of original sin. So where the ancient Greeks and the ancient Chinese and Confucians, Buddhists and so on, had seen humans as carving out a space for dignity and honor within an unpredictable universe and in the face of capricious and often immoral gods, Christians and Jews and, and, and Muslims insisted that humans could not be good on their own, but only through God. Because particularly in the Christian tradition, the fall had degraded both their moral capacity and their willpower, and only through God's grace could humans become moral. You know, it's worth adding that perhaps the greatest innovation, the real innovation of monotheist religions was not in establishing a new moral code, but a new reason for abiding by that code. And if you look at Christianity and Islam and Judaism, a lot of the, 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 the moral norms are drawn from previous traditions. Christianity, for instance, draws very heavily on both Judaism and, and, and Greek moral philosophy, Stoicism, for instance. But what it also suggests is that there's a, there's a new reason to be moral. Because if you think about moral code, they all possess two elements. There's a set of values that one should pursue and a reason for pursuing those values. And the importance of all the monotheistic faiths is that they developed a novel way of thinking about the relationship between the means, that is, the, the, the means of being good, and the ends, the ends to which being good takes us, because in the monotheistic faith, all of them, the end was God, and God was also the means to the end, the means by which we, we achieve the end we wish. And so one of the consequences was that morality became far more rule-bound, because the end was God, and God also made the rules that one followed to reach the end. And why follow the rules? Because God was now seen as all-powerful and all-knowing, but also because it was now thought that only through God could humans, who are now seen as fundamentally morally frail, be rescued from their own wickedness and weakness. And so morality now emerged less out of wisdom and reason than out of faith and submission and law. And I think that's a fundamental change that takes place. And what do the Hindu Vedas tell us about the way we should live our lives? And what, well, does, what do the ancient Indians, what do they come up with? And how different is it to maybe contemporary thinking in India today? It is very different because theirs is a polytheistic and a pantheistic way of looking at the world, not a monotheistic way of looking at the world. There are dozens of gods in the same way as the Greeks imagined dozens of gods. And so instead of having one god to which one looks for, for guidance, there were dozens of different gods who were often warring with each other and who were not necessarily good in themselves. And so the question of goodness becomes uh, much less straightforward and much more contested, if you like. It's also the case that in India in particular, the notion of, of right and wrong, good and bad, was shaped by the caste system. And so goodness and badness related in many ways to where you stood in the caste system and what your behavior was expected to be within the caste system. And that 
in a sense, shows us another aspect, both of morality and of religion, I think, which is that they flow out of social needs. There were specific social needs uh, that existed in India. And so the moral rules that bound Indian society together, uh, which was seen as, in some ways, divine, reflected the particular social needs of India as it developed o- over time. And, Kenan, do you not think now that that very tight caste system is loosening up in some way? Or do you think it still is entrenched in rural areas? It, it is very much still entrenched. Whether it will loosen up over the next period remains to be seen. India is changing enormously, uh, enormous economic and social changes. How that reflects itself in moral and political thinking remains to be seen. Because in a sense, what we're talking about are political questions as much as moral questions. And how the politics of India plays out over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years is an open question. Can you talk to me on how you, as a humanist, engage with Taoism? Taoism is interesting. Um, it's a Chinese philosophy. It goes way back in Chinese history comes out of forms of shamanism and folk religion. And it's something that expresses an attitude as much as a a way of life, as a philosophy. Um, And I'm not sure there is a a really well-thought-through philosophy in Taoism. Um, Though notions of of, of the Tao find themselves in very different kinds of Chinese philosophy. Um, Confucianism, for instance, expresses an aspect of the Tao. And in part, it's about the mystery the unknowableness, the mysteriousness of the world out there. Uh, it's become popular in the West, I think, because people want to engage with that sense of mystery and unknowingness. I'm not sure I'm that, you know, that that's something that, that I find particularly useful um, for my kind of humanism. What do you mean by that now, Kenan? That sounds a little woolly. Uh, well, it, 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 to a certain extent, Taoism is a little bit woolly. <laughs> Um, and that's, a, that, that's part of it. There's a famous line in Taoism, in fact, the opening lines, I think, um, which says, you know, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the true Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. In other words, the, 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 what matters is the, is the mystery um, and, and to engage with, 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 with the mystery. And, of course, mystery plays an important part in our lives, but it seems to me that to celebrate the mystery and myth in that way, um, it's not particularly useful. Now, Kenan, your book engages on the debate on free will and fate and so on throughout mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering where all of that meets the Buddhist principle of impermanence and what have you learned about that in your research? Well, at the heart of Buddhism, one of the principles um, that it, it holds is the um, idea of the impermanence of the world the belief that everything in the, in the phenomenal world, the world that we're able to perceive, is in a state of flux. And, and that includes human beings themselves. And that uh, there is no such thing as the self in, in, in any permanent form. There's a, an image the Buddha presents of lighting a, a row of unlit candles. The first candle is lit, and that is used to light the second. It's itself then extinguished, and so on, down the row. And human existence, uh, the Buddha says, consists of a series of moments, if you like, each lit up and snuffed out, and each moment of consciousness gives birth to the next, and then it ceases to be, and so on. And no person, therefore, is constant from one moment uh, to the next. Now, many people find those kinds of ideas quite appealing um, and think it speaks to a modern way of looking at 
the self than about the human. I think it, it's, it speaks more to modern anxieties about what it is to be human, the way that we often think of ourselves as not possessing a, a, a proper self or uh, free will. And I think it's in that context that Buddhism has become important to the modern world, particularly in the West. And do you think, do you think there's a general public misunderstanding of what it actually means to be a Buddhist? I think that we try and there's a tendency to make Buddhism into a, some kind of rational philosophy and to try and make it into part of the, the rationalist discourse about the world. And I'm not sure um, it can be understood in, in, in that way. It's part, it is in many ways an attempt to, to see the world in terms of mystery and that it is humanist in the sense that uh, it doesn't posit a deity, but in the way it understands the world, in the way it understands things like um, uh, the lack of self, the lack of uh, free will, the resurrection of the self, the continual cycles of the self uh, through, through history. It's not a particularly modern way of looking at these kinds of issues, I don't think. Now, Kenan, I'm just looking at some of the big names that you mention in your book and some of the ones that appeal to me. You go heavy on Marx. You go heavy, obviously, on Kant and John Stuart Mill. Um, You have some lovely stuff from C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you had the likes of Aristotle and Marx and C.S. Lewis or maybe throw in Confucius and some other guys like that Mm -hmm. and you threw them in a room today and close the door and Mm -hmm. ask them, come up with what would they make of the world today and what we're doing wrong. What Mm -hmm. would you think they'd come out with? I'm sure they'd have a very good, hearty discussion and debate. Um, But whether they'd come to any conclusion as to what is morally right or wrong. Now, that's a different matter, because we're talking about people with very different views of what does constitute right and wrong. And part of of what we need to do as moral agents, ourselves as human beings, is to have that debate and dialogue. And I fear that too often we are frightened of doing so, that we kind of sit on our own judgments, our own views of looking at the world, and are frightened of opening up and, and thinking about how others may, may look upon the world. Use that as a way of challenging our views and, 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 and trying to work out through dialogue and debate whether there's a better way of thinking about moral norms. And do you think that we can actually come to that and reach that reason on how we live spaciously and, I suppose, graciously with each other? I'm not sure we'll ever come to a, a single view of the world I'm not sure it will be good if we ever came to a single view of the world because the way we look upon the world is always contested and, and that's, that's all for the good because it is through that contestation that we begin to think about new ways of doing things. If, if everybody thought the same, we would never change, we would never progress. It's precisely because we have a, a variety, of diversity of views that we're able to move forward because it is in the contestation of ideas the new ideas, new ways of thinking arise.
And that was philosopher and broadcaster Kenan Malik. The Quest for a Moral Compass is published by Atlantic Books and retails at about €20. Now, a bit of advice. Don't be intimidated by the heavy-duty title. This book is aimed at the general reader and refreshingly will challenge how you think, live and feel. It's well worth the €20 and whatever you're having. Okay, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. This week's music comes from the talented Niels Fram, who rocked the house down last week at the National Concert Hall. Now next week I'm putting together a show about love, love and more love. Talking Books will be leafing through a book on the history of love and talking with Marion Coots, whose emotive memoir, The Iceberg, won this year's Wellcome Trust Book Prize. Now, if you've not already read Marion's book, it might be worth dipping into before next week's show. It's one incredible read. Courageous, hopeful, and most of all, unbelievably honest. For anyone who's nursed a friend or family member who was terminally ill, well, this book will really reach out to you. It's humbling. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the very helpful Paul Murnock on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this evening's show with some concluding words from Kenan Malik from The Quest for the Moral Compass. In his final chapter, entitled The Fall of Man, Kenan writes, It is comforting to imagine that notions of right and wrong, good and bad, come predefined by some external authority, that there already exists a moral map and that our job is merely to work out how to navigate it, to find our way to the given moral north. It is comforting because such a belief protects us from the responsibility, even the terror, of truly having to make moral choices. Choices become reduced to accepting or rejecting that which is already decided. The human condition is, however, that of possessing no moral safety net, no God, no scientific law, nor yet any amount of ethical concrete can protect us from the dangers of falling off the moral tightrope that we are condemned to walk as human beings. can be a highly disconcerting prospect, or it can be an exhilarating one. The choice is ours. Good night. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108.